Good morning. The, I'm continuing the series on joy, which feels like a bit of a stretch, to be honest. But as I was uh, thinking about joy, I was thinking about um, uh, movies. And everyone kind of loves a, a good movie. Olivia, our daughter, gets especially excited at this time of year because there's a Christmas movie channel. And she just binges on Christmas movies. To me, I find them a little bit um, unreal, cheesy, really, really unrealistic, and just not my cup of tea. I want something much more realistic in my movies. I want a little bit of alien action and sci-fi. <laughs> and I was thinking about my top uh, alien movies. And to get some help, I asked Dave from Hey You Guys, uh, no product placement at all. And, and I thought I would put up some pictures of my, some of my favorite alien films and see if you could guess from one picture what they are. So just shout out if you're there. Okay, picture one. Ah, oh, dead easy. Okay, uh, picture two. Gremlins. Ah, it was a bit of a debate. Is it an alien film or not? Well, yeah, yes. Okay, picture three. Now, one of the most scary films I've ever seen. Alien. Wow. Uh, picture four. Independence Day. Now, to my absolute favorite from 1982, E.T. Is there, just checking now, um, a holiness test. Is there anyone who has never seen E.T.? Okay. Shame, shame, shame. The Bible says there is no condemnation, but there is a little footnote there. An absolute footnote, Sam. Okay. Now, these films about aliens always make me ask the question, is there life out there? And I'm not just asking that quite glibly. I've had some amazing conversations uh, with my mum, the quite short ones about this, <laughs> this week. But I mean, the universe is so vast, isn't it? Is there anything out there? This is a, a photo of our galaxy. It's taken from um, the desert in Iran. And there are said to be 100 billion to 400 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the next closest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy. And this galaxy is between 25% and 50% bigger than our Milky Way galaxy. The numbers are huge. This next picture is a high-definition panoramic picture of a portion, just a portion of the Andromeda galaxy. And in this photo, the telescope captured more than 100 million stars in this picture. It's, it's quite amazing. It's pretty cool, really. And the quality of this photo is so amazing that you can zoom in. And as you zoom in, next picture, you see more and more and more. And you can, if you go on the NASA website, you just keep zooming in and you get more detail, more detail. It's like uh, taking a picture of the beach and then being able to zoom in and see the individual grains of sand. It's such an incredible picture. And there are approximately 100 billion stars, as I said, in the Milky Way. 
And yet there are estimated to be between 200 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. That number at the bottom is for maths geeks, Brian and other nerds and things like Paul over there. <laughs> it, it's 2 times 10 to the power of 11. It should be a little 10, but it's kind of amazing. I mean, boom, my mind is just blown, absolutely, in that. It is just incredible. Now, and I kind of was looking at this, and I kind of went down a bit of a, I was going to say a rabbit hole, a black hole, if you want. And I was reading about it, and I was surprised to hear that the physicist Brian Cox, he downplayed the idea, the likelihood of life beyond our planet. He spoke about the, the SETI project, project. SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence project. And they've been listening for a signal from other civilizations for over 50 years. And as yet, they've never heard anything. And Brian Cox said, Astron astronomers call it the great silence. And the reason, perhaps, is that there is nobody else out there. I think that's... Uh, Quite a statement. I want to show you another photo. It's the one that's been in the background. And for those with OCD, you've probably been going, what's that dirty dot on the screen? But this photo was taken by Voyager 1 space probe from about 6 billion kilometers away. That's about 3.7 billion miles. Now, that little speck, which looks just like the dirty mark on the screen, is Earth. And this photo was taken at the request of Carl Sagan, who was an American astronomer, and he wrote about our planet in a speech called The Pale Blue Dot. And I want to just have a listen to what he says, uh, just a couple of minutes in his speech. So we could... From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. 
Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Vastness. There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. <laughs> Joy. <laughs> <laughs> now, Carl Sagan is a humanist, and it is the belief of humanists and the belief of the person who doesn't believe in God that there is no help coming, that there is no one out there, that we are alone. But as followers of Jesus, we don't believe that. We don't believe we've been left alone. We don't believe that help has not and will not come. Instead, that is the reason for the great joy this morning. That we believe that we are a visited planet. If you have a Bible, can you maybe open it to John's Gospel, chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will, well, if you don't have a Bible, full stop, maybe do worry. But if you've not brought it this morning, it's all right. The words will come up on the screen. And it's a well-known passage. I'm just going to read three verses. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what John here in his writing is saying is that Jesus came from beyond this world to earth, that Jesus came beyond to, to this pale blue dot and visited us. But let's be clear, Jesus didn't come beyond this world to this moat of dust on a sunbeam, as Carl Sagan calls it, that he didn't just come as an alien. He wasn't an alien, a creature from outer space. Rather, he came as the creator of the whole of space. What John is saying in the opening chapter of this gospel, where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word 
was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What John is saying and introducing to us is this title, the Word. And as you may know, the Greek word for word gets confusing. The Greek word for word is logos. And this idea of logos has a deep meaning, especially for the people who would be reading this letter. You see, John was writing to a group of Greeks and to Jews, and so in using the word logos, everybody who read this would have really understood what he was saying. For the ancient Jews, they would sometimes refer to God as the Word. The Word of God, instead of just saying the Word God, for as you know, the Jewish people have such a high respect for the name of God, they would actually never use his given name. They would substitute, substitute it out. They wouldn't just say Yahweh, just like modern day Jews would rather not say the name God or write the name God. They often do G hyphen D. They believe it is such an, an ineffable name that it's such an unpronounceable name, a perfect, a holy name, that it is too magnificent to speak. And so they must certainly not write it down. They'd rather say Adonai or Hashem, which means the name. Or sometimes in their writings, like the Targums, which are commentaries on the Old Testament scriptures, they would simply use the term Memra, the Word. It was a designation for God himself. And so this idea was familiar to the Jews. They would know it meant God. But also he was writing to the Greeks. And they believed in what they called the logos, the word. And this was a term that was used by the Greek philosophers. You see, the Greeks understood that the world in which they lived and we still live has a level of design. It would seem that there are at least predictable patterns they would be saying, the light begins in the morning and ends in the evening, and it carries on like that in a predictable manner. There are rotations and orbits of the planets. There are seasons. It is predictable. There are lengths of days. And so after a while, you can observe and predict what is going to happen. And the Greek philosophers, they would ask the question, what is the source of this predictableness, predictability? What is the origin of all this ordered principle in the universe? What is this thing behind the cosmos? What is this thing behind the order, behind the laws, the symmetry, behind the predictability of nature? And they said that this thing behind it all, this ordering principle, is what they called the Logos. The reason for the order of the universe, according to Greek philosophers, is because there existed a logos, the word. So John, in appealing to the Jewish listeners, appealing to the Greek listeners, in saying, enarche en logos, that was the Greek. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning is the ordering principle. In the beginning was the first cause. In the beginning was God himself. 
John is being really strategic here. And he's starting to, to reach out to these people. And he's going, I want to tell you something about this thing you've already heard about. The Logos. You know it. Everybody, you know what I'm talking about. Jewish friends, you know about it. Greek friends, you know what I'm saying. You kind of get the idea already. But I'm going to tell you who it is. I'm going to tell you who he is. And you know what? Their ears would have perked up. I'm going to tell you who he is. Who the Logos is. I'm going to tell you that he came to earth. That this Logos, this word, came and visited earth. And the phrase we use for that is the phrase in Christianity, incarnation. We sing about it all the time. Verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. See what the words are there. Veiled, I mean that's hidden. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, Emmanuel itself, meaning God with us. And he's saying that God became a man. That he didn't just visit us as an alien. This God, this creature from the heavens, from outer space, didn't just visit us, but this, the creator of the whole space, the creator of all the universes, the creator of the billions and trillions of stars and galaxy, became flesh. The incarnation. And that's incredible joy of Christmas. That he, the creator of all, is made flesh. That he, the omnificent, which means the one who is unlimited in creative power, that he, the omnificent, becomes a creature. The one who is omnipotent with all power becomes a baby who is powerless and helpless. That he, the one who is omnipresent, who the one who is fully present at all time, in all times, is now limited to the years that he was on earth. And the incredible joy of Christmas is that the, the omni of all omnis is reduced to flesh and bone. I mean, God is so omni that the English language doesn't have enough omnis to describe him. And what John is saying, and what this phrase, incarnation, means, is that the Word, the Logos, the omni of all omnis, is made flesh, is made soft. It means the Word was made vulnerable. God has become vulnerable. Thomas Merton, the Christian writer, said, 
Vulnerability is just another word for incarnation. I mean, what is more vulnerable than a baby? And Christmas is radical because it highlights the fact that only Christianity, of all the religions in the world, only Christianity says the divine creator of all the world has become human and therefore is vulnerable. The divine creator of all, the omni of omnis, has become vulnerable, has become killable. And that the divine creator has come down. He has come down. This term with my year eight students, they're 13 years old, we've been looking at moral dilemmas. And we're talking about a particular dilemma, and we talk about, imagine you're wearing uh, new shoes, but you happen to be on the, the pier side and you're walking along the beach, and you see someone drowning. And there's nobody else there. And the question we ask is, what do you do? The person is there drowning, calling out, help me, help me. And the thing is, and this surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't, the majority of the kids said they would not come down and help. And I was a bit taken aback. And I asked them why, and I thought it might be because they, they would say and that because they've got new shoes on, they wouldn't come down. But they didn't. They said it was not their job. They said they would not come down because that was someone else's job. And to come down, they said, could put them in danger. Because to come down was to help, was to risk their life that wasn't their responsibility. Because if you come down, you're now vulnerable. And so, nobody came down. But do you know what Christmas is telling us? Christmas is telling us that when Jesus, the Lord of heaven, heard our cries, help me, he came down. He made himself vulnerable. And he didn't just come down the way those people might have come down when someone was drowning at the risk of their lives. When the Lord of universe came down, he came down knowing it would cost him his life. The Word became flesh. The Word became vulnerable. The Word became killable. The joy of Christmas. And Christmas means that he has come down. Hebrews 2, chapter 2, draws out the implications of this idea of the Word became flesh. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared, shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. 
Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And one of the most fascinating implications, and the whole kind of book of Hebrews tries to draw this out, the, is that if it's true, if the God of heaven has become flesh, is that he understands you and he understands me. Why? Because he's been where we've been. In some of the songs we sing at Christmas, for example, in Joy to the World, we use the phrase, wonderful counselor, which are words from the book of Isaiah. Have we thought about what that means and why we sing it at Christmas? Wonderful counselor. I think it'd be fair to say that sometimes the best counselors are people who have actually been through a problem, that they've come out the other end. They're okay-ish now, and they talk to you as people who have gone through the same thing. Those are counselors who understand. So do you know what this means? Why Jesus is the wonderful counselor? Well, it's because the word became flesh. Because he came down. And because he understands, it means he knows what it's like. As you know, I fell off my bike a while back and I damaged my shoulder, which resulted in me needing surgery. And while many of you have kind of said, oh, I'm sorry, and you've kind of made nice shoulder, um, neck tilts of sympathy and cooing noises to say you're sorry, oh, what a shame. My friend Stevie in Edinburgh, I think, has understood me the most. Why? Because he was such a good friend that he fell off his bike just a couple of weeks after me. <laughs> He damaged his shoulder too, and he's also had surgery. Why did he understand the most? Because he had been through it too. Again, what is Christmas? Christmas is saying something that no other religion wants or dares to say. That the God who created the universe knows what it's like. They don't dare say that God knows what it's like. I was reading this week about Islam, and I was struck by something it said, and I'm not uh, dishing Islam, it's just a real difference. I was reading about how Muslims believe they can have a relationship with God, and it with Allah, and it struck me what they said was that he is the master and they are the slaves. Kind of struck me for some reason. But we have a God who came down, who's been through it, who calls us friend, who calls us brother, who calls us son, who calls us daughter. He knows what it's like. Hunger, loneliness, homelessness, grief, 
rejection, betrayal, torture, injustice. He's experienced it all. So what does that mean? Have you been betrayed? Have your friends betrayed you? So has he. Are you poor? So was he. Are you lonely? Are you facing death? Whatever you're faced with this morning, he knows what it's like. You can go to him, the wonderful counselor. And we need to trust him. And we need to go to him with what we have. And if somebody says, and you might say it yourself, yeah, I understand all of what you're saying, but wait a minute. I've gone to him. I was in trouble. I went to God and I prayed and I poured out my heart. And he didn't listen to me. He didn't answer my prayer. I feel like he's abandoned me. Well, Jesus knows what it's like to have a big prayer turned down. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, if there's some way we can save the world without me going to the cross and experiencing all the the agony, please let this cup pass from me. But he was turned down. The meaning of Christmas. God has experienced that too. He knows what it's like. Jesus, God in flesh, the omni of all omnis, knows what it's like to be abandoned. As Jesus hung on the cross, he uttered those profound words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the weight of the world's sin bore down upon him and he experienced the anguish of separation from the divine presence. And it might seem paradoxical to our understanding of of God's unwavering love, but this moment is a testament to the depths of God's empathy of our human struggle. That Jesus, in his humanity, identified with the profound sense of abandonment that some of us may feel in our darkest hours. He knows what it feels like to face rejection and the silence of heaven. Yet, in that moment of apparent abandonment, God was working out the greatest act of redemption the world has ever known. Christmas means that when we're in trouble, when we're struggling, when we have problems and we feel that God isn't listening, and in fact not even answering our prayers, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, has been there. He knows what it's like. Christmas means when we shout and we rile at God, which is fine, by the way. When we shout at God, why are you allowing all this suffering? His response is, 
I know what it's like. For he has come down. He knows what it's like. Have you got that? That we must frame all our struggles within the knowledge that he has come down. That he, the word, the logos, became flesh. Have we got that? That we can go to him with anything because he knows, he understands, he has been there. Do we trust him like that? When we look up in the daytime, we may observe the clouds in the sky, but apart from the sun, we can see no further than what is called the Carmen line, where the Earth's atmosphere and space begins, which is approximately 62 miles away. But at night, we can see much further. It's generally agreed that the furthest thing observable to the naked eye at night is the Andromeda galaxy, 2.5 million light years away. But we can only see this when the distraction of man-made light has gone. And yet, at this time of year, we seem to turn the brightness up. We turn it up so much we don't experience the joy of this heavenly visitor. As we draw closer to Christmas, life gets more ridiculous, gets more chaotic. The list gets longer, the stress gets higher, and the patience gets lower. Our lives are pulled in a thousand different directions. And we're sold the story that chaos is what it's all about at Christmas. It's just part of the gig that we're spread so thin. And we turn the brightness up so much that we cannot see Jesus the Word, the Logos coming down. Julian's just going to come up and lead us in communion, but as he does so, I encourage you just for a second to, longer than a second, that was a lie, just for a minute or two, close your eyes. As you close your eyes, try and enter a moment of silence. We try and be silent, but the noise, the busyness of the season just overwhelms the silence. Sit for a minute. John the Baptist said, prepare the way. Make straight his path. Christmas.
in the silence that we struggle to find. Hear what the angels said and pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Pleased with us. He came down because he was pleased with you. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, pleased with us. Pleased with us. In the silence, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let him tell you how pleased he was that it was his absolute delight to come down. It was his delight to experience it all just for you. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel.